Hi everyone, Pave, your faithful podcast host here, wondering if you're wondering what our guests look like. Well, you don't need to. Co-producer of the show, David Basanta, takes many lovely snaps at our recordings, which we share on Twitter at Two Size, Facebook, Instagram, and even LinkedIn as Two Scientists. Go and check them out, then follow us for updates. For now, though, just follow this podcast into our chat with grad student Renee Fonseca. This is Palm Bear from your Two Scientists crew coming at you from the Mermaid Tavern in Florida where we are currently trying to hide from a, a tropical something which is developing apparently and if it develops into that something it's going to be called Barry so we're hiding from Barry right now um, and we are hiding and enjoying a beer with Renee Fonseca. How are you Renee? I'm doing well. I didn't know there was a tropical something on the way. Oh yeah. This is something you're not going to have to worry about for a little while is because you've just graduated from USF with a mm-hmm. master's, is that right? Yeah, a master's in bioinformatics and computational biology and then a master's graduate certificate in biotechnology just for good measure and uh, yeah, not much more, that's it, plenty of degrees. Yes, <laughs> collecting them. But so normally we'd ask people how you got to this stage in your career with the science, but I want to go further back because I remember you telling me about how your family ended up in the US and I found this story completely wild. So tell us about your Colombian dad. Yeah, so my dad is from uh, Barranquilla, which is a coastal city in Colombia. And uh, so he grew up there, he went straight from high school into medical school there, which is a thing which is odd to me as someone from the States to imagine myself going out of high school at, what, 17? Mm-hmm. And hopping straight into medical school. I don't know if I would have the maturity for that, but props to him. He did very well. And he quickly thereafter had to look for a residency in the U.S. because the hospital he would have been placed in in Gali, um, another big city nearby, was supposedly run by the Cali cartel and he didn't particularly want to work there. So he applied to about over 100 residencies here in the States and was fortunate enough to get a maybe from two places, uh, University of Alabama in Birmingham and University of Miami. And he came over to the U.S. with just a bag and hope that he could find a spot that would take him because these two schools that said maybe didn't really know if his school in Colombia was real. If he actually was a physician, I guess, they, they didn't entirely believe him. So he had to go and prove himself and uh, he did end up getting a position and he ended up at Miami in the end and did very well there and to this day is doing very well in Florida. He has practice. He's a hemoc, oncology, hematology, so cancer and blood disease. And uh, he actually met my mother down in Miami when he was, or nearby, when he was trying to get his situation fixed. And uh, he did not marry her for a green card, let's just say. <laughs> um, and then, but she's, uh, she's Puerto Rican. So she's a, a U.S. citizen, and she basically is an artist. So she was living down there, free and fresh out of art school, and they got together and traveled around the U.S. trying to get residency for him and get his visa sponsored, like the tale of many, I think, first-gen kids and, and immigrants' children. And eventually were able to be stable here in Florida, which I've gone to school here since then in Florida. So you're actually like a hangover from the Narcos story in real life. Yeah, so actually my, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was invited to go to um, 
So he was invited to go to Escobar's farm or finca or whatever, uh, where he has the the zoo with the giraffes and the hippos, which are now wild throughout parts of Colombia. There's hippos just kind of roaming. People okay. will take the babies in sometimes. And it's just a big mess, but because they have no predators there. Oh, cool. So it's like the iguanas in yeah, exactly. But you can't. It's harder to eat hippos. Um, so, you know. But, yeah, so they were invited to go to Escobar's farm, and they denied that invitation. Um, I think a lot of Colombians have, like, some sort of personal story with the Monarchos thing. Oh, my yeah. cousins lost their farm because it was taken by the FARC, and, I mean, they had to, some of them had to come over to the U.S., and actually, I'm going to be going to Colombia this, in a week, and I'm going to stay with the parents of the cousins that we brought to the States mm-hmm. after they lost their home. So it's like a full circle thing. So crazy. I guess we should move on to your personal story then. So what was it that inspired you to go into science and into the particular subjects that you ended up studying? I I feel like I should have like a good story for this, but maybe it's just not that like inspired thing. I'm just a very, I guess, stubborn person. I don't necessarily believe what people tell me. Mm-hmm. I like to go out and find out for myself what what multiple sources say or what different people with more knowledge than I have say, and that's something I've, it's really been a part of the way I think since I was really young, which has led to a lot of arguments between me and uh, authority figures as I grew up. <laughs> um, so it's, it's very much just been a lot of me wanting to learn things for myself and find out what other people have found before me and accumulating all of that knowledge and, and using that to create a, a future opinion. So, which is really kind of the scientific method in, in its core, um, I think. So, it's just kind of the way I think. And I grew up with a lot of science um, and a lot of art in my house because my dad is a physician, my mother's an artist. But those viewpoints can actually cross over a lot. It's kind of that like wide range, full perspective kind of way of looking at the world and trying to understand it as a sum of its parts, mm-hmm. which kind of creates the type of science that I'm interested in, because it's not just, and I don't mean to belittle anyone else's form of science, but it's not just, I want to do genetics, which is one of the things I'm passionate about, but it's, I want to do genetics and see how that can affect my work in, in advocacy for um, minorities and just dis, dis, um, minority peoples and, and people that experience the world in different ways. So I like to do things that encompass all of my passions, and so science has allowed me to kind of touch upon a lot of different parts of me. Okay, so tell us more about your specific two master's projects, I guess, but tell us more about the research that you did. Yeah, so um, I've been doing a lot of really kind of random projects recently, but um, they're all kind of tied to the health of people and to genetics and to advocacy for populations. So basically, um, recently I was working with some people that were doing preferior research. And we put together a hackathon to go ahead and try to build some databases and tools that were useful in tackling porphyria and Friedrich's ataxia-based uh, research. These are two rare iron-related diseases. And uh, they used a lot of omics, basically. So the idea of using computational sciences to tackle um, big problems focused on DNA, protein, RNA, things like that, where you have a lot, a lot of data, and you want to kind of go through it all and find some sort of useful answer. And um, so we built a lot of systems in conjunction with the NIH and with the Genomics Corps over at USF. 
that we're hoping could be actually useful for providers. And that kind of led to a lot of work with um, genetic counselors, trying to make sure that the information we look at with genetic variants is accurate and uh, is useful to patients dealing with rare diseases. Okay. Um, so what was the result of this hackathon? Because I saw lots of mention of this at the, on the USF campus. What was, how many days was it? So it was three days. It was a symposium and a hackathon. And um, basically there were five teams that came up with different ideas. Uh, some of them put together different databases that accumulated patient stories and individual symptoms and um, genetic sequencing data from like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, mm -hmm. consumer uh, genetics programs that you can just upload your own DNA to this new database. If, if it were to be HIPAA compliant and all mm -hmm. of those good things, it's a, like a theoretical thing. So, but the database was actually built um, so that theoretically a patient could upload their 23andMe results, for example, to this database as, as along with their patient stories, their personal symptoms, and then send a link to their family to do the same. And genetic counselors in a little program could look through and see if there are any interesting associations between certain symptoms people describe as having experienced and what the variants associated with their 23andMe or Ancestry.com results were. Because we were able to find that those two consumer genomics tests actually do test for some of the variants associated with those rare diseases, which was kind of a happy accident. So, um, and then also to send it to families and friends that maybe don't have the disease, mm -hmm. but it are related to you, just look at issues of penetrance, yeah. which is when you have a variant that you would think would cause a disease, but you don't see it in a person. So it just isn't having the same effect you would expect. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to look and see how that kind of more of a complex idea could be affecting how people are experiencing a rare disorder. Okay, so. we should have actually explained what a hackathon is. So the two others here, like they're very familiar with these things. They, they get to suffer for five days every year, yes. Um, where they do their own hackathon at Moffitt. So what was the... What literally happens when you go to this thing? You've essentially got people from very different backgrounds, I guess, who come together to work on a singular problem. Yeah, so ours was a little funny because it's not like the um, major league hacking, stay in one room for 48 hours, never leave, survive on chips, and, and pure stamina, and create some robot arm that like picks up a cup and flips it over. Like It was very much focused on what can we do using existing data to benefit genetic counselors, physicians, and patients dealing with these specific iron-related rare diseases? So, a bunch of random people walked into a room, they were invited or they signed up or whatever, and this was anything from patients to physicians to advocates to students to computer scientists to just like random humans that were curious. Um, a lot of people had little to no coding experience. A lot of people were coming from engineering or mathematics and had no clue about rare diseases or just general biological ideas. Excuse me. So basically, they all walk into this room and they're given like a breakdown of what these rare diseases are, the importance, the data we have, and some ideas as to what you can do with this to create something that's beneficial. And so each all these people are split up into groups, and each group has like a team leader. And the team leader kind of creates the, the basis for some possible ideas. Maybe that team leader is like really good with proteins, so they want to do something proteomics. 
um, or they want to do something with genomics for genetics. And they kind of go from there. And each team discusses and then they start building. And a lot of coding is involved and so you hope that someone on your team can code and if not, you find <laughs> someone else that can and you steal them away from that team. So and then at the end, you just present what you did and uh, we just ranked the projects and, and kind of gave a lot of criticisms and supportive, constructive feed feedbacks over, over this course of like three days. And we had a lot of different experts come in and help uh, the groups create things that are more useful. Mm -hmm. And because uh, the goal was to create like a useful piece of technology rather yeah. than just something that would like look cool. So, and then at the end we had five projects that were given uh, funding from the NSF to have an ongoing um, computational cloud kind of access so they could be stored in there and worked in, worked on and made to be more like fully developed projects. And there's going to be another hackathon next year, uh, also sponsored by USF Genomics, to try to continue this whole mm -hmm. pattern and, and really build something that's useful for the USF community and the Tampa community. Oh, cool. So will they pick a different subject each year, a different disease type, or...? That's being determined currently. I have an opinion on that, but I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> so um, hopefully it will it'll kind of open up more so that it's something that can continue every year and become really useful to the USF community as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, so, But it's really important as to keeping in mind what the people involved want it to be. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're talking to um, some of the people from the NIH uh, right now about it and different people at USF to try to see what they want to do. Okay, so, very cool. So I'm going to start peppering these with questions from David because he likes to do that from a distance. What data would you ask doctors to collect for you if you had power over them? It's, it's big because because in my mind, in my mind, any work that I'm doing right now, I want it to be something that has longevity. Um, I want it to be something that's useful for people in the future. And so I have to think about what the future is going to possibly look like. So I have to think about things like um, migration patterns and climate change and all these things are going to change human density and diversity and movement and populations and because I, I tend to think I guess in a population kind of way. Um, so I would want something that kind of encompasses us now but us in the future. So. I would say, I think a good example could be kind of what's happening right now with, uh, I don't mean to just pop an ad in here, but NIH is All of Us um, program, which is like collecting DNA data from people across the country and using that to kind of inform and to support ongoing research into health and um, diseases and to the effects of environmental triggers and hazards and factors and blah, blah, blah on, on people. Um, things like that I think are really useful. I think it's also really useful to go into countries that are not the U.S. and to work on getting health data from people there, but in a very specific way, in a way that is working with the people that are giving your data, giving you the data, not just, you know, taking it, not like a colonialist kind of style, but very much involving people on the ground. Um, so if you're going, like I am, into Colombia, for example, and you, I would want it to be focused on something Colombians want. So the people you're working with, it needs to be research that they're interested in. So basically, taking a lot of data from a lot of different people in a lot of different regions of the world and using that to try to see how factors like changing climates and factors are affecting health of people over the long term. So environmental effects and things like that. So basically just a really big diverse population is what I would want. Um, that is like willing and able to give that data and is able to be part of the whole process of 
combing through it and and analyzing it and using it for improvement of health in the future. Okay. So that's complicated. That's not yeah. a good answer, but it's an interesting one because I mean we're all for advertising something that is essentially for the greater good. So can you give us the name of the project again? We'll put a link yeah. in the um, the NIH is All of Us, and it's at allofus.org, I think. Um, and it's U.S. specific, but there is groups doing similar things, I'm sure, in other countries. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Very good. Uh, this seems like an excellent segue into your next adventure, which is part of your Fulbright Scholarship. Mm -hmm. And for that, you're heading to, as you say, Colombia. So first of all, let's talk about what the Fulbright Scholarship actually is. Can you explain uh, what it is and how you got it? Yeah, so um, I should know the date, but at one point in time, Senator Fulbright uh, was, a, was a senator, and he, <laughs> um, he basically had the idea that if, the, if people from the U.S. were to go to other countries and act as academic ambassadors, basically, that the ability of the U.S. and those other countries to work together would be improved because when you have large countries and government officials talking, that's all well and good, but if people in the countries do not have any sort of tangible connection to people from another country, then you're, you're missing out on some sort of peace there. So his idea was kind of like um, Peace Corps or people to people, different sorts of student or worker ambassadorship kind of programs. So when you're a Fulbright scholar, you either are someone that's going over to another place to teach English or to work in an academic setting and do research. You can go over as a student or a professor or as a person with just skills. So you can be the best elementary school teacher in Nebraska and you can go to another country and say you go to Indonesia and you can work with elementary school teachers there and exchange knowledge. And so it's not just people from the states going there, they're also taking academics and specialists and successful students from other countries and they're giving them scholarships to come to the U.S. as well and to work with people here as well as to go to school here, uh, go to school here. There's also an option to do a two-year master's degree um, abroad if you're a U.S. citizen or at the U.S. if you are from another country, as well as to have, I think, the first two years of your PhD paid for in certain countries as well. So uh, it's a very competitive program. Um, depending on, on the program you're applying to, you may get different benefits, but uh, basically there are countries in every single continent um, that are open to accepting Fulbright scholars. So I applied to Colombia because it's very near and dear to my heart and because I think they're doing really cool work over there uh, focused on diversity in genomics. Um, so I was able to connect with someone there and to uh, speak to them and form kind of a project together and apply based on that project. So, and Colombia is doing a lot of work right now to improve health or to really focus on health care and scientific research in, uh, throughout the country, but especially in areas outside the capital city, which is Bolivar. So it was just a very, a very well-timed match, basically.
Okay, so first of all, you know, Fulbright Scholarship is a big deal, so congratulations. Thank you. But um, moving on, obviously you're off to Colombia very soon. Mm -hmm. um, tell us more about the project, because I know this is, this is something, you, as you say, is very near and dear to your heart. Yeah, so actually I just got signed on to another grant, so it seems like the project may have expanded a little bit. Yeah, which is good. Um, so basically the general idea, and we'll see what happens when I come back, or what I come back with, but the general idea is that there's um, a region of Colombia called the Chocó, or the Department of Chocó, and it's a region that is predominantly Afro-Colombian, and it's been that way since basically the Spaniards brought a bunch of West Africans over to Colombia. Those Spaniards. Yeah. So basically, Chocó is a, it's this really beautiful area with a lot of natural resources, but unfortunately it's not given a lot of funding and a lot of support. Um, it hasn't for a long time. And it's hard for, for people in the capital really to support a lot of areas of Colombia because the terrain is really difficult to navigate. Um, there's a lot of places you can literally only get to by plane because of mountains and rainforests and rivers and things. So a lot of places are kind of isolated. So this region has very different demographics uh, mm -hmm. than a lot of other parts of Colombia and it has very different healthcare um, resources and healthcare outcomes. And so there's a group of people in Colombia, in Cali, in Medellin, in Bogota, in Chocó, and then also here in the U.S. are kind of put together groups to focus on health conditions and traits specific to Afro-Colombians to try to see if they can find unique genetic variants or unique information about diet and environment or uh, different plants and foods in the area that could be useful in improving the health of the people living there. So they focus on things like cardiac health or um, breast cancer or prostate cancer, which is what my project was based on or is based on. Conditions that are basically found in elevated rates in that population, as well as in a lot of populations of African ancestry. So any useful information that we find uh, through this project is not only beneficial to the people of Chocó, but also beneficial to anyone who is of African ancestry. So that's a lot of Latino Americans, that's a lot of Caribbeans, a lot of people here in the States and, and throughout the world. So uh, the idea is to look for variants specific to prostate cancer and breast cancer in this population. And that combination was picked specifically, oh there's fries. There's a lot of fries. Wow. Are those the truffle fries? They are. Oh. I went to a restaurant during truffle season in France and they shaved like whole truffles on top of this pasta I had. It was wild. This much food for like 50 bucks. Shaved truffles? Yeah, it was like they pulled it out of the ground and just, oh my god. I didn't eat anything else the whole day because I spent $50 on meals, so <laughs> whatever. Anyway, important things like health, um, so basically, right? This is, well, the, the grease lubricates your arteries and, and it makes the blood flow faster. Is that medical okay. advice? Okay, let's uh -huh. go back is to like actual advice? science. <laughs> Pseudoscience. I don't want to be Marianne Williamson. Would be me. <laughs> so, basically, um, my project focused, or my project proposal for the Fulbright application grant focused on prostate and breast cancer specifically because currently there aren't um, prostate cancer screenings 
available to the same degree that there are for breast cancer screenings. Mm -hmm. And something like that would be very useful to people that maybe have a family history of prostate cancer. Prostate cancer actually runs in my family. So it is something that could be really useful to family members of mine. Whereas breast cancer screenings do exist and they're very popular and well known. But with a lot of things, a lot of genetic screenings were based on populations that are predominantly people of European ancestry. Mm -hmm. So we want to just go through and make sure that nothing was missed um, or that there aren't unique variants that were found in this Afro-Columbian population that could be useful for people of non-European ancestry. So can you so, define what a variant is? Yeah, so um, a variant in this case would be some little part of a, of a genetic sequence that is a little bit different in different people and that can kind of affect how a trait expresses. Let's say you have, and this is really oversimplifying, but let's say you have um, five little spots on, on your genetic code. And if each spot changes a little bit, you're a different height. So let's say if they're all purple, you're five feet. But if one's green, then all of a sudden you're six foot. So that would be a variant that would change how a trait, your height, is expressed. Um, height has way more things to it than that. There are no purple and green spots. But still, basically we would be looking for variants like that associated with breast cancer in this Afro-Columbian population just to double check that nothing was missed when these screenings were made, and using that same sort of method to try to create a prostate cancer screening from the ground up that includes this population, as well as some of the really easily available populations of European ancestry and of Asian ancestry and things like that. Basically to create more all-inclusive screenings. The other project that I was just signed on to is focused on glaucoma, which I found out last week that I actually am uh, carrying traits that make me susceptible to glaucoma, which is um, when the nerve in your eye loses blood to some degree and you go blind. So it's not fun. And uh, so the idea is to look for traits associated with glaucoma in this population as well, which could be really useful to literally anyone because it kind of comes out of nowhere. So um, the hope is that we can accumulate some information focused on these different health conditions and bring that information back with me to the U.S. And hopefully we can have some Spanish language publications as well as some English language publications so that other researchers can grab a hold of that and continue working um, and building upon that. And we also want to do some public health outreach in the area and pass that information out to people in Quito, which is a, a main city in Chico, and that's where one of the universities that I'm working at is based and hold public health sessions there so that people can gain something from these this research that's being done. So a question was asked, Jill asked, if um, there's a known association between um, prostate cancer being found at a higher rate in um, African-American men and, and or African-American people with prostates. So I would say yes, um, it's one of the leading cancers found in African-American people with prostates. And uh, for people with breasts, breast cancer is a big killer, and people with cervixes, cervical cancer is a big killer in African-Americans. So those three are all major forms of cancer that affect that population. So that's kind of where the ones that we worked on were picked from. So we didn't do cervical cancer because there aren't, as far as I know, existing screenings for that, but there's like a very easy um, like cotton swab tests that can be done that's being implemented in a lot of countries so we don't want to 
mess with that. So, but breast cancer is something that is already very well developed, so we wanted to go through and see if anything was missed, which would be important. So since the test is so readily used, um, in, in the States at least, to test for BRCA, is probably the most well-known variant associated breast cancer. Now another thing I know you intend to do when you get out there is to do some science communication related to the research and the work that yeah. you're carrying out. So what is it that you've got planned for that? So it kind of depends on what I see on the ground and what seems feasible. Um, there are certain parts of, of uh, the trip from, I'll be living Cali, but the trip from Cali to Quito in the Chocó that may or may not be available for me to take depending on um, safety situations. So if I'm able to go there, um, then I would hope to be able to do in-person outreach sessions with local community leaders. Um, at the university and hopefully in some sort of community center in the main city of Quito. There's actually um, there's some really good flyers and handouts from the NIH that are um, examples of like Spanish language public health outreach teaching about different body systems and different diseases and health conditions. So we're hoping to have something like that put together and, and pass those out as well as to have in-person like, question and answer sessions to some degree. If I'm not able to go over there then I hope to be able to implement um, kind of putting together a WeChat or a, I'm sorry, a WhatsApp um, system where, where people can be issued information based on the results of the uh, experiments going on if they're interested in that. They could sign up on the, the website, it's actually Choco Gen is the name of the, the project that I'm going to be a part of. So basically doing outreach through the website, so they could be text, uh, they could receive texts, or they could be like a Facebook page or emails or something, whatever is useful um, to basically ensure that the information being learned from this data that basically it was about 90 something volunteers put forth their whole genome sequences. So we want to make sure that they receive results based on this work afterwards. So they're not just giving away their samples and, and not knowing what is done with it, mm -hmm. um, or or what the end results of that work was. So, okay. So presumably this is going to be in Spanish. Now I don't mean to sound like a jackass, but I didn't speak English until I was five years old. Up until which point I only spoke Punjabi. But these days, you know, my Punjabi is kind of ugly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, if I go to India, they instantly know. Oh I'm yeah, like, I, I sound like a gringa for sure. Yeah, yeah. And this no, is 100%. what I meant to ask: is how is your Spanish, and how do you feel like yeah. this would be responded to within the community? So that's one of the things: is that is that who am I, a gringa, to go into this community and to to tell them that I know this about their health and, and that they should listen to me and blah blah blah. Which is why it's not necessarily going to be me doing all of that. I can be just like the event planner in the background. Um, because many of the people working in the project are from Quito and they work in Quito. Uh, there's a professor there, uh, Miguel Medina, or Dr. Miguel Medina, and he is um, kind of the, the main guy there in, in Choco, and then he has people that work with him and, and in his labs over at uh, the university. So he would be kind of the face of that part, because for me to walk in and do that, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't be appropriate and it wouldn't be very believable. I know I wouldn't be very receptive to that if I were in their shoes. So, because I, I definitely do sound like someone that grew up in the U.S. Um, when I speak Spanish. So, yeah, that's that's one of the main 
goals of mine is to make sure that people that are involved and are going to be there after I leave too are kind of the main faces of everything and that everything I do is something that they want mm -hmm. to do too. It's not me pushing something on them. Yeah. So I think also people have the impression that they can just kind of swoop in and mm -hmm. they can share information that's instantly going to be taken up by the local people and you know they can fall flat on their face by not understanding the community in any way, shape, yeah. or form. Yeah, there's a, a phrase for that. It's kind of like charity tourism or something. Mm -hmm. And it's it's or volunteerism. Yeah. And and it's actually one of my main fears with this whole thing is that, that I don't fall into that. I, I plan to not take Instagrams with children like on my shoulders because that's like the hallmark of it. It's basically just going in and saying I'm from a great cool country and I have a great cool life and I know things I went to college and so let me go here and tell you what to do with yourself and make you think that I am going to stay and I'm going to put my time and invest my work into this and I care and then up and leave you know a couple months later and so that's that's very much not what I want to do so I want to be kind of like a liaison between some of the people here in the US that are working on this project and the people in Colombia and hopefully take this project when I finish there and I move away from Colombia, I want to hopefully continue it and continue to be a part of it um, as I move into my PhD so that I'm not just appearing and taking from this country because it's, it's my country too. Um, Colombia is, is a part of me as well so I don't want to be someone who's taking from it. Uh, what was the driver for your activism? Um, so, I would say growing up um, we moved around a little bit, but no matter where we were, the moment we would land in a new town, my mom would immediately become involved in the community in some way. Um, she was part of AmeriCorps for a while, which is like Peace Corps, but in the U.S. Um, she was part of a bunch of different boards of health orgs and hospitals and um, women's centers and different community outreach groups, and she was a city councilwoman and a state representative and all sorts of different, or she, she ran for that, all sorts of different orgs and groups and positions and she was always very invested in the community. And it didn't really matter how how quickly we had gotten there or how long we were going to stay, she would always take the time to become a part of the community as, as quickly as possible. Which is good when you move somewhere new, it helps you meet people quicker and become a part of the community faster, but the purpose of it really was to show that without investing in your community, you can't really have any control over what your community is, you know? So, so basically, growing up, I always saw someone that was very much a part of the world around her, and if she saw something that was not in her mind okay, or needed to be worked on or bettered, for her or for her kids or for her family, she would personally go and become a part of some group or some advocacy work that, that was relating to that issue. So, um, yeah, and it was lovely growing up with that. Um, my dad was very supportive of that whole thing as well, and, and he did it in his own way as well, but it was something that she would take us to meetings with her and she would take us to events with her, my brother and I, um, as we grew up. And so it was always a part of my life. And for me, living without my family, it's still a part of my life because it's just so ingrained in, in how I, I used to live and how I grew up. 
So when I first left my house um, for, for undergrad, I immediately joined like 20 organizations, like every kid straight in undergrad, and uh, found a few niches and kind of stuck to those and, and kept working and, and being a part of that until I've come here now to Tampa and, and I've been in a few places in between, but I've always tried to find places to go to do some sort of advocacy work or to do some sort of community service. Um, and I, I mean, I definitely have some favorites here and in Orlando as well. Um, so, because if you see something in your community that you don't, you don't think sits right with you, it's all good and well to complain about it, but if you actually do something about it, then that shows that you actually have some sort of initiative and then you took the time out. And if you can't take the time out, then at least donate. Um, things like that are really important. I have no money, but I give money to organizations that I believe in every month, um, like $5 per place. And I try to take the time out of my day to go, go work with people doing really cool work. So a couple of years back, um, before I moved to Tampa, I met um, Desmond Mead, who was a part of the group of people, or he began the whole petition to um, give returning citizens um, their right to vote again, so Amendment 4 here in Florida. And I met him at a, a conference here in Tampa, Ebor, and hearing his story about how he had been in jail for a little bit, and when he got out, he went and got his, uh, I believe that's GED in jail, and he went, he got a college degree afterwards, and then became a lawyer afterwards, or he got his law degree, is Juris doctorate, mm -hmm. and he could not practice law um, because he was a returning citizen, and he could not vote because he was a returning citizen. So, um, because in the state of Florida, we have some laws that are holdovers from Jim Crow laws that basically ensure that people that have felonies are unable to vote um, unless they fill out a petition and they wait like three years and then they go to Tallahassee and they have a hearing and blah blah blah. But in general. It was very, very difficult for someone to be given the right to vote back. And so there was an almost two million citizens here in Florida that, you know, paid taxes, that had jobs, that were, you know, people here that we see every day and and they weren't able to express their their voice in this one part of, of the US, which is something I think voting is something that a lot of people believe is like a true merit of democracy and a true merit of the US. So I was like, wow, that's that's a powerful story, that's really unfortunate that's a good thing to learn and I went home I forgot about it for a little bit and then I went out and started registering people to vote in my community which is uh, at that time it was Inverness Florida and uh, which is a really small town in central Florida and probably every third person I spoke to outside of a Dollar General um, was unable to vote because they were uh, a returning citizen or they had had a felony and it was Sometimes it was really little things, and sometimes they, they didn't really want to talk to me about it, which was totally cool. And um, I, I realized that it was literally tons of people that I probably saw every day. And so I spoke to local groups in my, in my town and in my county, and we started getting together petitions to uh, support his amendment and collecting petitions and um, passing them out and getting signatures and to get it on the ballot and then we started doing door-to-door -door knockings once it was on the ballot to get people to support this amendment once it was available for them to vote on and telling them that you know you might not think you know someone that's in this category more than likely you do and and this is someone that wants to have a say and and you might as well give them a say 
because they are very much the same as you. So that was one of the big kind of advocacy moments I got to have moving from Inverness to Tampa that I was able to continue as I came over here because the the elections were ongoing as I moved. So I was very happy and proud to be part of that and I was very happy and proud when it passed. And actually I met some of my first friends in USF's bioinformatics program when I brought the petitions to class and I made people sign them. I did not know any of these people. I just walked into class and was like, here, sign this. <laughs> so, and, uh, and and my professors as well, which is, um, it was a good first impression, <laughs> maybe. So I really enjoyed being able to become a part of that. And I, although it was kind of maybe a weird situation for them, I really enjoyed making my classmates sign the petitions as well. Because the petition signing is not a vote, it's just allowing it to go on the ballot. So. And then, of course, I told them to vote for it, but whatever. Yeah. So, this might be a stupid question, but for me as a resident, is it worth signing these petitions? Because I don't get to vote. If you're not a registered voter, you can't. So, so, yeah. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah. If if you can't register, if you're not a registered voter, you can't you can't sign the petitions. I mean, you can sign it, and it's just not useful. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not useful. So, <laughs> I mean, but you have to. You can find someone else that can sign it, and you can make them sign it. They're always out at like farmers markets. There's always people mm-hmm. petitions on campuses. I was at Pride in St. Pete the other the other day, and there were tons of people petitions everywhere. So we. So yeah, it was so fun. <laughs> So, um, yeah, there are tons of people petitions everywhere, so you can always find someone. Usually people don't want to sign them because they don't know what they are, but mm-hmm. it's not a vote. It's just supporting people that want to have something on the ballot, and, and that's the whole point of a democracy is allowing people to put things on the ballot that allows people to vote for mm-hmm. these ideas. So, very good. So, you're off to Columbia very soon when you head out. I think, I think Saturday, so that's like in four days, five days, yes. I can't count. And we, we were talking about the fact that you haven't packed yet. I've packed, mostly. <laughs> I haven't packed my kitchen yet, but I'm actually taking all of my, my whole pantry basically is mostly unopened canned goods, so I'm taking them to the food pantry. Oh, very cool. So I'm going to hopefully do that tomorrow or the day after um, and donate them all to the, the USF food pantry. Uh, yeah, I, I just thought of it the other day. I was like, oh, this is a great idea. So, because <laughs> any canned goods are great for that sort of thing. So, and I can't store them for 10 months. So. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully All right. that helps. On that subject, we are going to say thank you so much for meeting us. Peace out. And yes. yeah, we hope you have an excellent year in Colombia. Thank you. Let us know how it goes afterwards. Hopefully, yeah. you can come back in 10 months. Absolutely. Yes. Was getting my first like major internship 
Um, it was at Moffitt Cancer Center here in Tampa. And I was super excited, but it was also my 21st birthday, which was uh, July 3rd. So I actually just recently had my birthday. Um, and my mom surprised me with a trip to Portland, Oregon to celebrate, have a girls' trip. And it was right before my interview for my internship, but I was like, that's okay. I'm going to go have fun. So I went, it was my first legal alcoholic drink, and we went out, we partied, we bar hopped, and my mom had seen an article in a newspaper or a magazine about like the best bakery in all of Portland, and how they had these amazing brownies, and they happened to be pot brownies, which was legal there at the time, um, I want to point out. So, <laughs> so I was like, I don't know, mom, I don't know, you know, whatever, mom. I was a very... Um, I'm sure, young young lady, and so she was like, no, we have to go, we have to go, and I was like, okay, whatever. So we went bar hopping, and eventually we got to the bakery, and we got there like just after closing. You know, we rattled the doors, we were like, oh no, and our flight was the next day, so we just, we were like, oh, whatever, we gave up. So we had a great time, we came home, we flew into Florida, and the next day I drove up to Moffitt for my little interview, and they said, you know, you did a great job, you have the, the internship, all we need to do is some paperwork and a drug test. Huh. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, well, thank God I didn't find that pot brownie the day before because I would have been failing that drug test immediately. So <laughs> I was able to uh, not fail it and actually get my internship at Moffitt, which was perfect because that's why I ended up at USF in the first place um, and why I just got my master's from there uh, months ago. This recording took place at the Mermaid Tavern, accompanied by delicious truffle fries and the threat of a storm called Barry. Maybe that's why our sound was so out of whack. Thanks to them and our guest Renee, who you can follow on Twitter at Renee underscore Fonseca. Big hugs and thanks to our friend Jill Gallagher, who joined us for drinks and chat. And David is always for the photos. Finally, the track you're listening to right now comes courtesy of Membrane Band, a French outfit making fun science-themed tunes. You can find out more about them on their website, membraneband.com. And you can find out more about us at twoscientists.org. Until the next time, I bid you adieu.
Narcos guy. The big one. What's his name, David? I literally just watched the show, <laughs> and I should know this. I just remember that. I just the P. Oh. With a P. 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 Pablo Escobar. Yeah, oh my God. Escobar. Escobar. Thank God. Oh my God. 